the Ostomy Nurse Project. Hi everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Ostomy Nurse Project. We are continuing on today with the second part of our series on inflammatory bowel diseases. So the previous episode, if you tuned into that, we discussed the inflammatory bowel disease known as ulcerative colitis. And in today's episode, we're going to be branching off from that, but keeping it relatively similar in talking about another major type of inflammatory bowel disease, commonly known as Crohn's disease, which you may know it as. So if this is the first time that you've tuned into the Ostomy Nurse Project, or if this is the first episode of our series that you've selected to listen to, you may be a person who is suffering from Crohn's disease and either has had a bowel resection and stoma formation as a result. You may be a person who suffers from this condition and you are contemplating um, potential stoma formation surgery. You might be a friend, carer, or a loved one of somebody that has this disease and you want to know more information about it and what that can result in in terms of stoma formation and stoma management. Or you may be a healthcare provider or somebody in the healthcare system that works with these types of patients and you may want more information on Crohn's disease. So that's what we're covering in this episode today. We're going to just reiterate a few of the points from the previous episode that people may not have tuned into talking about inflammatory bowel disease itself. Then we're going to talk about how Crohn's is distinguished from other types of inflammatory bowel disease and how it's diagnosed in people with these conditions. Then we're going to go on and talk about the types of stoma formations that people can undergo that have Crohn's colitis. And then we're going to talk about some of the potential problems and challenges that people may face if they do have stoma surgery as a result of Crohn's disease. So that's all coming up in this episode. So I recommend that you tune in, keep listening. And at the very end of it, we'll have some tips and tricks and maybe even a fun fact or two about Crohn's disease. So as I mentioned in the last episode, inflammatory bowel disease is the overall term given to inflammatory conditions that affect both the small and large intestine. They are chronic inflammatory conditions which result in an immune response that attacks the cells in the intestines. And so for people with inflammatory bowel diseases, the immune system in their bodies mistakes things like food, bacteria, um, and other foreign bodies in the intestines as alien. And it tells the body that it has to fight that as a bacteria or as uh, as a means of protecting the body. It's a mistaken response to things inside the bowel. Now, the result of that is chronic inflammation inside the lining of the bowel and inside the tissues of the bowel. And that chronic inflammation is further exacerbated and made worse because we continue to eat and we have to eat for survival. So that permanent inflammatory condition perpetuates on itself and that's where people get these debilitating and painful inflammatory conditions and the result of that is often nutritional imbalances um, severe pain multiple treatments involving um, immunotherapy which we spoke about in the previous episode and i'll touch on it again in this one but there's lots of treatments that are involved in trying to manage this uncurable condition because inflammatory bowel diseases particularly Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, to this day still don't have a proper cure because we ultimately still don't understand the ultimate causes of these diseases. So that makes things very tricky. So in this day and age, we do use a lot of medications and a lot of treatments that work on not only the bowel itself, but the immune system um, and the way that the immune system functions and suppressing that inflammatory response to those things inside the bowel that create that condition. 
Okay, so that's inflammatory bowel disease as a whole. Crohn's disease specifically was recognized as a separate condition from uh, ulcerative colitis way back in 1932, following a publication by a group of scientists and surgeons and physicians, one of which was Dr. Burl Bernard Crohn, hence the name Crohn's disease. It did have other names before it was Crohn's disease. It was referred to as terminal ileitis. Uh, It was also referred to at some point as regional ileitis. But eventually it got the term Crohn's disease given to it following that publication that distinguished it from ulcerative colitis. So Dr. Burrell Bernard Crohn was born in 1884, died in 1983 at 99 years old, ripe old age, well done. He was an American gastroenterologist and was a Jewish physician. And he worked with several other doctors, namely a Dr. Berg, a Leon Ginsberg, Gordon Oppenheimer, And they worked together on a project that distinguished Crohn's disease as terminal ileitis. Now, publishers changed the name to Crohn's disease, which it is said, and I can't quote this, that Dr. Crohn was not particularly happy about it because he didn't want to be associated with bowel disease, nor was he the only doctor who had contributed to the works. And it is even said that the the publication that came out based on the study that they did, which distinguished Crohn's disease... Dr. Crone only contributed um, very minimal patient participants to that study. So he didn't necessarily believe that he was the one that the disease should be named after, considering that the other doctors, Ginsberg and Oppenheimer and um, Dr. Berg, did a lot of the work as well. So whilst he thought that it should remain named terminal ileitis or regional ileitis, the publishers were the ones who ultimately gave it the name Crohn's disease. Now, in this day and age, Crohn's disease is defined as a disease of transmural inflammation, so across different layers, with lesions that may involve any part of the gastrointestinal tract from the mouth right through to the anus. So that's really important because that's one of the distinguishing differences between Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis is limited to the colon itself. You won't find ulcerative colitis in any other areas other than the large intestine. With Crohn's disease, it is a debilitating disease that can occur anywhere in the bowel, the small bowel, the mouth, the stomach, and even on the skin. And we're going to talk about that later, the complications that do come from Crohn's disease, because people who suffer from Crohn's often have multiple comorbidities and issues with things like fistulas and and skin conditions. And we'll talk about that in a sec. Now, the signs and symptoms of Crohn's disease are very similar to ulcerative colitis because, again, it's an inflammatory bowel disease. But the most common symptoms of Crohn's disease involving the digestive tract include things like abdominal pain and cramping, diarrhea, fatigue, unintentional weight loss, and in particular, anal pain, because if these people are going to get lesions or or fistulas around the perianal area, they can get a lot of pain in that region. So again, they're very similar symptoms, um, but they're slightly different for Crohn's disease because Crohn's can occur anywhere in the bowel, whereas people with ulcerative colitis will most often have left-sided bowel pain because that's most often where ulcerative colitis occurs. 
Now, some people do get other symptoms and related disorders when they have Crohn's. Mouth sores um, are fairly common and they can develop during what we call flare-ups of Crohn's disease. And they're usually found between the gums and the lower lip or along the sides or the underside of the tongue. And if anybody's ever had mouth sores before or mouth ulcers, they're really painful. Um, And the medicines used to treat the digestive tract usually are quite effective at treating those mouth ulcers as well. So it's very important that if you are experiencing mouth ulcers and you suffer from Crohn's um, to get in touch with your specialist because a lot of the drugs that help to treat the Crohn's can also help to treat the mouth sores. Some people get arthritic pain in the, you know, arthritis, joint inflammation, which can occur in people with Crohn's disease. And it usually affects the larger joints rather than the smaller ones. And those symptoms of arthritic pain are also active when the bowel symptoms are active. So some people report that when their flare-ups are really bad, they get that joint pain. But when the flare-ups subside and the person goes into remission, those symptoms go away. Eye inflammation is another one. It's all about inflammation, really. Eye inflammation um, is called uveitis or scleritis, and that occurs in a very small percentage of people that have Crohn's. And they can affect one or both eyes. But the symptoms of that include um, eye pain, blurred vision, sensitivity, You might see little bubbles in your vision, um, and this can cause a burning or an itching of the eye, and we have to prescribe eye drops for that. And then anal problems, as I mentioned before, the anal pain. So Crohn's disease can cause problems in the area right around the anus, and the most common problems include what we call fissures, which is another word for like a tear around the anal sphincter, ulcers, so perianal ulcers, or fistulas, which is a tunnel between the intestine and the other organs. Um, We may find those in infected areas of skin. And even in some cases, these anal problems can mean things like stenosis, which is a a stricture or a narrowing of the anus itself. So it makes it very difficult for people to have a bowel motion. And these problems um, around the anus can actually occur on their own or in combination with other Crohn's symptoms in the rest of the intestine or wherever it may be found. Now, sometimes these symptoms will heal of their own accord. And in other cases, it's often requiring treatment uh, therapeutically through medication um, or even worst case scenario surgery, which I'm going to talk about a bit later in the episode. Now, although Crohn's disease was actually coined Crohn's disease following that publication in 1932 when it was separated from ulcerative colitis, the first series of Crohn's disease cases that was published was actually published in the British Medical Journal in 1913, so a lot sooner than 1932. It wasn't called Crohn's disease then, obviously, but Thomas Kennedy Dalgiel described nine separate cases in this case study that he did in which the pathology of people's bowel um, suffering this condition showed lots of white blood cells, uh, trying so inflammatory cells, giant cells and granulomas with no infectious agents. If you've listened to some previous episodes of the Ostomy Nurse Project where we've talked about skin conditions, I mentioned granulomas, which can happen around a stoma, and they are little growths um, within the lining of the bowel that can can grow and get bigger. They're not necessarily um, any danger to anybody, but they can be quite difficult to manage in terms of pouching because of bleeding and friction and things like that. 
So in this case study that Thomas Dalgil was publishing, and he mentioned that these giant cells and granulomas that were not of an infectious origin, that's the type of picture or the scenario that I want you to imagine. So what they were seeing was inside the bowel, they were seeing almost like a cobblestone effect, um, these hardened granulomas within the bowel that was a sign of this chronic inflammation and this this distortion of the inner lining of the, the bowel and these intestines that was causing all these patients pain and difficulty with absorption and malnutrition losses and things like that as well. So that's also one of the distinguishing features of Crohn's is that they were seeing these cobblestone effects or these internal granulomas, whereas they weren't seeing those types of characteristics with ulcerative colitis. With ulcerative colitis, they were seeing obviously these big white patchy areas of ulcerated mucosa, the inner lining of the bowel. But with Crohn's disease, it was demonstrating more of a total bowel effect. So growths inside the bowel um, from this chronic inflammation. And the article that Dalgio described uh, with his patients, he actually described the bowel as having the consistence and smoothness of an eel in a state of rigor mortis. I think that's a very delicate description of bowel that's been affected by Crohn's, don't you? Uh, Two of the cases were fatal due to extensive disease and strictures. And the remaining cases, which included a 10-year-old child, had localized disease treated successfully with surgery. And he actually quotes in this uh, article, one does not hesitate in resecting large portions of the intestine. And while he talks about bowel resections in this article back in 1913, it wouldn't actually be until the 1950s when Brian Brook started to popularise the loop ileostomy technique. So there was a bit of a gap in between there, but surgeons were certainly starting to resect areas of bowel um, way back then as they started to discover and distinguish Crohn's disease as an inflammatory bowel condition in itself. Now, the article that followed in 1932 that gave Crohn's disease its name also described 14 patients with this condition, which they termed regional ileitis. Now, the 14 patients that they studied ranged in age from 17 to about 52, so a very broad age range of people to be studied. And the pathology that they discovered on their tests consisted of, and I quote, necrotizing and cicatrizing inflammation. Cicatrizing is like scarring in the terminal ileum, as well as transmural inflammation, strictures, and fistulas. So what they're essentially saying is that the the area of bowel that's affected by Crohn's disease is so terribly inflamed and scarred that it is becoming damaged. Parts of it are dying off and um, creating holes because of the inflammation and the damage to the very delicate tissue in the bowel. Now, the only other interesting thing that they discovered at the time, if you heard that, that, that quotation where it said they were finding it in the terminal ileum, this is the very last portion of the small intestine. So the ileocecal junction where small intestine meets large intestine, which is about the area down in your lower right pelvis, about where your appendix sits. These are the areas that were commonly being discovered to exhibit this disease. However, during the 1930s through to the 1950s, Crohn's disease was actually found to occur throughout the whole gastrointestinal tract. It had been described in the esophagus, in the stomach, in the duodenum, so the very 
very end portion of your stomach when it meets your small bowel, and the jejunum, which is the very first section of the small intestine itself. So they were finding this disease in all different areas of the gastrointestinal tract, which is very different, as I mentioned, from ulcerative colitis. Another discovery along the way was when Charles Wells uh, published a report connecting Crohn's disease with what they call skip lesions, which is where you've got an area of healthy bowel in between two areas of diseased bowel. And that was um, a characteristic of Crohn's disease that, again, you don't often see in ulcerative colitis. With ulcerative colitis, it usually starts in a central area and can spread from that area, whereas Crohn's disease, it could pop up in multiple different places. And that was also a way to distinguish Crohn's from other inflammatory bowel diseases. Now, I get to name drop here and probably a fun fact number one for the day in this episode President Eisenhower actually had surgery for Crohn's disease in 1956. At the time, he was 65 and he'd suffered from years of abdominal pain and cramping, but had only been recently diagnosed with Crohn's disease. So after that, he had an operation to repair a bowel obstruction. He went on to recover quite well and he became quite open about the disease and his surgery was one of the first surgeries that was really able to popularize Crohn's disease as an illness in itself, as opposed to being a bit of a medical mystery and a bit of a medical myth at the time. So he really popularized that and helped to distinguish it as a very well-known disease after that point. And finally, one of the other um, events that really popularized the diagnosis of Crohn's disease and separating it from ulcerative colitis was the uh, evolution of what we call the sigmoidoscope or having a sigmoidoscopy, which is an endoscopic camera that can actually go inside the bowel to inspect the tissues. And this was um, a process that gradually became more popular in the 1960s so that more cases could be diagnosed based on being able to see those physical images of that cobblestone-like dysplasia in the bowel. So it actually took a really long time for Crohn's disease to be separated on its own, as opposed to just being included in either ulcerative colitis or inflammatory bowel disease. Nowadays, it is diagnosed as one of the major inflammatory bowel diseases that are in the uh, present in the urbanized world. And it is uh, interesting to note that it is an urbanized illness. And studies of different countries and different cultures have actually shown that there are certain cultures and there are certain countries and there are certain socioeconomic communities that are predisposed to developing Crohn's disease. And to this day, we still don't know why. And many, many studies continue on in this day and age to distinguish why it seems to be a disease that presents itself in uh, more Western society and those in better socioeconomic classes, so in urbanized areas that people are developing these Crohn's disease bowels. All right, diagnosis and classification. Not that it matters to any of you out there, but there is a classification system that we use to describe the Uh, severity, I suppose, and the location of Crohn's disease in people that suffer from this disease. Much like if you are diagnosed with a cancerous tumor, we grade those tumors based on their size, their location, whether or not they are penetrating outside of that localized space, and whether it has spread to other organs. That's how cancerous tumors are graded. And you would often get given a a, a letter and a number that corresponds with that, like a T1N something. With Crohn's disease, it's actually very 
similar. So they have two different classification systems. One is the Vienna classification system and one is the Montreal classification. Vienna is uh, not really used as much these days because it's um, not as specific. It's a bit more broad and generalized. So these days they use the Montreal classification. And the three factors that they use to classify Crohn's in people are age, location and behavior. So you would get a three labeled classification for your disease when you are diagnosed with Crohn's. So the age at diagnosis, you've got A1, A2, A3, A1 being below 16 years of age at diagnosis, uh, A2 between 17 and 40, and A3 being newly diagnosed over the age of 40 years. So that's pretty self-explanatory. That would give you either an A1, A2, or A3 diagnosis. Location is a little bit different. Location is pretty self-explanatory too. You've got L1, L2, L3, and L4. L1 being limited to the ileum area, so the small, just the small intestine is diseased or pockets of Crohn's are found in the small intestine and nowhere else. L2 is colonic, so Crohn's is found in the colon and nowhere else. L3 is iliocolonic, so that's where you've got both the small bowel and the large bowel involvement. And L4 is isolated upper disease. So that's where Crohn's would be found outside of that tract. So stomach, um, esophagus, um, you know, those sorts of areas. So the location is not necessarily either in the small or the large intestine, but found elsewhere. And then you've got your behavioral classification. And this one is a little bit trickier. B1, B2, B3, and P. Poor little P doesn't get a proper classification, but I'll explain that in a minute. B1 is what we call non-stricturing and non-penetrating, which means there's Crohn's there, but it is not um, proliferative or it hasn't grown enough to start blocking off the bowel um, and creating a tightening around that area. So B1 is the base level where it hasn't yet done that. It's not penetrating into any other space. B2 is classified as stricturing. So a stricture is what we call a narrowing or a tightening around the bowel. And sometimes if Crohn's is found to be so severe that it is causing the bowel to create almost like an elastic band so that it's blocking things off, that would be classified as a B2. B3 is penetrating, which means that would be penetrating outside of the bowel. This is where people might be developing fistulas, so an opening in the bowel. It might have penetrated right through and caused some sort of fistula in the body. And then you've got P, which stands for perianal disease modifier. So this is for people, um, you may have either a B1, B2 or B3 classification, but you might have the P added to it. Because sometimes with Crohn's disease and and people who suffer this disease may have experienced this, you can also have what we call perianal disease. Because Crohn's affects anything from the mouth to the anus, perianal disease is where people often develop what we call perianal fistulas or disease ulcerations, those difficult inflammatory sores around the anus itself. So if you've got either a a penetrating or B2, B3 classification with a P noted to it, that's indicating that you've also got some sort of perianal involvement in your Crohn's disease. So that's just a bit of a rundown on the Montreal classification system of how they diagnose Crohn's disease. So they classify it based on the age at which you're diagnosed, the location of where the Crohn's disease is found, and the behavior. So whether it's penetrating, whether it's burst open, whether it's creating a stricture, or whether it is down found in the perianal area as well. What does this mean for people? 
From a stoma nurse perspective, it means nothing. From a surgical perspective, it may help to determine your surgical options. If you have a penetrating or a stricturing form of Crohn's disease, that may indicate that the disease is so severe that you're experiencing intestinal blockage, bleeding, ulceration, sepsis, um, and fistulas, where if you've listened to the Ostomy Nurse Project episode on fistulas, which was fairly recently, you'll understand that those fistulas are abnormal connections between two different organs. So that might be the bowel with the skin. It might be the bowel to another area of bowel. It may be a connection or a hole between the bowel and the bladder. They are characteristics where the Crohn's has been so severe that it has broken down that lining of the bowel, broken through it and connected it to another organ. And that can lead to very serious complications, as I said, like sepsis and requires an operation to actually remove that diseased area of tissue. Now, interesting fact again, number two for this episode, uh, even with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's, the uh, dysplasia that these diseases um, pose on the bowel can actually increase a person's risk of developing colon cancer later on in life. And so for people with Crohn's specifically, regular colonoscopies are often required to make sure that those areas of disease are treated and controlled and that they aren't progressing to grow into something more sinister like a malignant tumor. So that's very important for people that suffer from Crohn's. Make sure that you're getting your regular colonoscopies to make sure that you're not at risk of developing bowel disease and cancer. Okay, medications. Much like ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease can be treated with several different um, medications or pharmaceuticals. So some of the first frontline drugs that were discovered and used to treat inflammatory bowel diseases, including Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, were things like your heavy-duty steroids, your prednisolone, your corticosteroids. Then there were the drugs like uh, azathioprine and sulfasalazine and methotrexate, which... Uh, sulfasalazine was essentially, if you heard the last episode, it is a sulfur antibiotic which is combined with an anti-inflammatory, which is mesalazine. And that was particularly effective for treating symptoms of ulcerative colitis and things like that. So those initial drugs were initiated and they had some response. And some people to this day still get very good responses to just those drugs. For the people that don't respond, however, we have to go to the next line of therapy. And this is where we start getting into our immunomodulators and our biologics. Methotrexate is one of which, which was originally used as a chemotherapy drug, but is actually quite effective for some people in treating inflammatory bowel diseases. Interestingly, it wasn't until 1989 that the clear benefits of using methotrexate were discovered to treat Crohn's disease specifically. So that's quite a long time between its initial um, implications in the 1950s through to 1989 when they documented and published clear results showing the benefit of methotrexate in treating inflammatory bowel diseases. And in the most recent years, so say about the last 20 years, medical therapy has Branched out from the steroids and the immunomodulatory drugs for people with really severe disease. And this is where we start to get into our biologics. These are our drugs that people commonly know these days as things like infliximab, adalimumab. They are biologic drugs that specifically target a certain chemical 
in the body that stimulates or perpetuates the inflammatory response. So these drugs are very specific at targeting what we call tumor necrosis factor. I don't expect you guys to remember that or even know in detail about that, but these drugs specifically target tumor necrosis factor to prevent it from stimulating an inflammatory response to the bowel. So that's where we're at, the current frontline treatment when steroids don't work, um, sulfasalazine doesn't work, these immunomodulating drugs are no longer effective for people who are suffering severe Crohn's disease, we then go to biologics and we look at targeting those very specific hormones, chemicals in the body and the processes by which they create that inflammatory damage to the bowel and we switch that off basically. So that's technology is wonderful in that we've now got a lot of these medications and therapeutic drugs that can help treat the symptoms of Crohn's disease. And I want to emphasize that it is treating the symptoms because again, we do not have a cure for these inflammatory bowel diseases. And whilst we can treat the symptoms of it and give people back a certain quality of life, we still don't know how to cure this disease that affects lots and lots of people in today's day and age. All right, time for some stomal therapy side of things. As a stomal therapy nurse, I deal with lots of people who have had stoma surgery as a result of being treated for Crohn's disease. Now, Crohn's disease, although it can happen anywhere in the gastrointestinal tract, the principle is the same for some people who have to have large or extensive areas of their bowel or their colon removed. If the damage is so extensive that they have to take a significant portion of bowel, or if they deem that the bowel that they're operating on is too fragile to be put back together effectively, your surgeon may choose to temporarily divert your bowel in the form of a stoma. And evidently in the 1950s, when I mentioned earlier about Brian Brook, who created the loop ileostomy, Here's a fun fact number, what, two, three for the day. He was good friends with Dr. Crone, and so they actually worked together quite well with Dr. Crone um, promoting the Crohn's disease uh, in the community and the fact that Brian Brook started doing bowel resections on people and even started to perform loop ileostomies on patients suffering from Crohn's disease as a means of surgically relieving the symptoms of that diseased bowel. Because as food is traveling through the intestines, it's perpetuating that inflammatory response and aggravating that piece of bowel, which can be very debilitating for people. So whether or not people have had bowel resections to remove the diseased piece of bowel, or whether they've got a low-lying form of Crohn's disease that is causing their quality of life to, to suffer... Surgeons may choose to simply divert the bowel to see if that will relieve the symptoms and allow that immunotherapy or inflammatory response to subside enough so that the patient gets relief from their symptoms. And there has been research that has suggested simply diverting the bowel in the form of a stoma can relieve the symptoms of Crohn's disease to a certain degree. So there are a couple of reasons why a surgeon may choose to perform a temporary stoma on someone with Crohn's. Either they've had to resect a large portion of bowel or that the quality of the bowel that they're putting back together is no longer functional enough to allow intestinal continuity straight away. So they might choose to do a temporary stoma once they've removed that section and reconnected. Or they may simply choose to divert the bowel and not operate on the affected area as a means of just relieving the symptoms and seeing if the normal drugs like the steroids and the immunomodulators and such can um, subside that disease and, and reduce that inflammatory response and relieve the symptoms of Crohn's disease in that person. 
Now, as a stomal therapy nurse, I treat those people in the same way that I would treat anybody that has a temporary stoma. We would find you an appropriately fitting pouch or accessories that you can use to make sure that you get good adherence and have a secure fit around your stoma so that you can live your normal daily life as best you can. That is the overarching principle of stomal therapy. The challenges that we face, however, and it's very similar to ulcerative colitis, is to do with people that have Crohn's who are either continuing therapeutic drug treatment or people who have continued active Crohn's disease when they have their stoma. Now, as I mentioned in the previous episode, I know I keep jumping back and forth between the two, but they're actually very similar. For people who have been on very heavy doses of steroids in the three or so weeks leading up to their surgery, steroids can have a significant effect on the skin. And in terms of healing trajectories, you may find that healing can be slightly delayed or impaired if you've been on heavy doses of steroids prior to your operation, in the immediate weeks prior to your operation. So sometimes people experience what we call mucocutaneous separation, which is where the stitches give way, where the stoma meets the skin, and it creates a little bit of a wound, which we can treat with stoma accessories and wound products, right through to people who have such delicate skin that's been damaged or, or made so thin by steroid treatment that um, the application and the removal of ostomy pouches and accessories can actually cause mechanical damage, moisture loss from the skin, which can create things like itching and sores underneath that appliance. So these are all things that we take into consideration when we are treating people who have Crohn's disease and are living with a stoma. So we make sure that their healing is, is a priority when their stomas are new. And these things can be ongoing depending on whether the person is continuing their drug treatment. Now, one of the other issues with drug treatment is that sometimes people who have ongoing active Crohn's disease, don't forget Crohn's can occur anywhere in the gastrointestinal system. That also means that we can sometimes see areas of Crohn's affected tissue in the perianal area, in the mouth, on the skin. And occasionally we do see ulcerated areas or areas of broken down skin around the stoma of people who have Crohn's disease. And this presents a whole new set of problems because we then have to start working into the wound dressing side of things underneath your normal ostomy pouching system. And that can make your changing routine quite complex. So we're very mindful of the things that we use underneath your pouch to dress those wounds and make sure that the exudate from those wounds or the ooze or the fluid from those wounds is not causing an impairment to the adhesion of your pouch to your skin. Because if you've got a wet nasty wound underneath your pouch, it will simply make the pouch fall off because the pouch can't stick to a wet wound. So this is where we start to get into wound dressings. Sometimes we use maybe a hydrofiber dressing to absorb that excess fluid. We may put film dressings over the top of that wound before we put your ostomy pouching system on. Or we may simply resort to ostomy products. So things like stoma powders, stoma pastes, stoma seals. They are all accessory products that we can use to try and cover that irritated or that wounded area whilst you're wearing your ostomy pouching system. So if you're a person who has Crohn's disease or if you have a stoma whilst living with Crohn's or being treated for Crohn's and you do happen to notice that you've got some problems with your skin under your uh, pouch or around your stoma, Always get in touch with your stomal therapy nurse because we can make recommendations on what type of dressings or what type of ostomy products you can use to fix that problem and make sure that you're getting a proper adhesion and securely fitted pouch. 
Now, for some people who are on heavy doses of steroids and people that have taken steroids would be able to account for this, sometimes steroids can actually increase weight gain. Um, so for people who have been on very heavy doses of steroids and then get relief from their symptoms or maybe are going off their steroids, being weaned off them or actually going back on a course of steroids whilst they're living with a stoma, both weight gain and weight loss can affect the way that your pouching system adheres to your skin. If you lose weight, you may find that you'll get increases or wrinkles in places that you didn't have before, and it may change the shape of your stoma itself. So you may need to accommodate for perhaps some different pouching styles to make sure that you're still getting a secure fit. On the opposite end of the scale, for people who put on weight with heavy doses of steroids, you may find that you might need to switch to perhaps a, either a flat pouch as opposed to a convex pouch. You may simply need to revert to cutting a bigger size around your stoma. If you put on a lot of weight, your stoma can get bigger. So you may need to be cutting bigger sizes or you may need to be using larger accessory products to protect the skin around your stoma. So there are also functional daily things that we come across where we may need to make some adjustments to your pouching system if you are undergoing treatment for your inflammatory bowel disease. Now, just before we finish up for this episode, I want to jump back to the ulcerative colitis episode where I talked about the surgical options for people in terms of restoring their, their bowel continuity. So if you have a stoma as a result of ulcerative colitis, the popular method of restoring that bowel is to undergo what we call an RPC or a restorative proctocolectomy and ileal pouch anal anastomosis or an IPAA. Now this is the modern procedure of choice for people suffering from ulcerative colitis and what we call FAP, which is familiar adenomatous polyposis, which is essentially a um, genetic condition which predisposes these people to almost a 100% chance of developing colon cancer. So for these people, they may choose to have the entire colon removed and an anal pouch reservoir created out of their small intestine. Now, unfortunately for people with Crohn's who have a stoma, Restorative proctocolectomy and ileal pouch anal anastomosis is often contraindicated for Crohn's. And I have to have this conversation with a lot of people often because sometimes they think that by having a stoma that it can be uh, reversed or that they can have the bowel removed so that they won't get their Crohn's back anymore. And unfortunately, that's not how Crohn's works. IPAA surgery is often contraindicated in Crohn's disease due to very high complication and failure rates for people with Crohn's because the disease can come back and it can come back in the small intestine, which is used to create that pouch reservoir. So often a lot of people who have Crohn's and want to undergo this proctocolectomy and ileal pouch surgery, the pouch goes on to develop what we call pouchitis or well, they may develop patches of Crohn's in the new tissue that has been used. And that reservoir then becomes non-viable and inevitably it has to be removed surgically again if it becomes diseased with Crohn's. And by removing such long portions of small bowel that have been used to make this reservoir or this pouch, that is predisposing people who have Crohn's disease to a condition that we call short gut syndrome, which is where if we remove too much of the small bowel, 
There's not enough length to absorb the energy and the nutrients and the goodness from the food that we eat before it comes out the other end. So that's why um, these types of operations are often contraindicated in people with Crohn's. That's not to say that people with Crohn's can't have their stomas reversed. If they're a temporary measure just so that the area that's been resected has healed, yes, people can undergo a reversal where the bowel would be reconnected and you can restore your bowel continuity and go to the toilet and have a bowel motion again throughout the normal passage. Bearing this in mind, however, this does not cure your condition and you may in future develop further flare-ups of Crohn's disease. So there is the potential for having future bowel resections and potentially even having stoma surgery again in the future if you have a severe flare-up of Crohn's disease that requires surgical intervention again. So yes, you can be reversed and you can go on to live a very good quality of life, but it's important to bear in mind that stoma surgery may be either a temporary or a permanent option for some people who experience Crohn's disease. Well, we're pretty much summing up the episode on Crohn's disease at the moment. I'm just going to clarify and summarize everything that we've talked about today. So Crohn's disease is under the family of an inflammatory bowel disease. It is a chronic inflammatory condition or an autoimmune disorder where the bowel recognizes things as foreign and the body creates an inflammatory response in areas of the gastrointestinal tract. The similarities between ulcerative colitis and Crohn's include that it develops in um, particularly teenagers and young adults, although very young children and older adults can also receive their diagnosis or their new diagnosis at ages outside of that. It affects both males and females equally. There's no distinguishing feature between men or women. The symptoms are generally similar between the two conditions, which I mentioned at the start, a lot of cramping, a lot of pain. Um, a lot of uh, sometimes sepsis fevers, malnutrition and weight loss. And at the end of the day, these inflammatory bowel diseases have no known cause and the cure is yet to be found. So very importantly, there's a lot of technology and research that is going into trying to find a cure and better treatments for inflammatory bowel diseases. I mentioned them in the previous episode. In Australia, we have a great website. It is Crohn's and Colitis Australia. You can jump on their website and go and find them. They have a great resource if you are a person who has Crohn's or if you are a person who wants information on Crohn's. They've got great resources and patient information to give you in regards to living with this inflammatory bowel condition. Worldwide, there's also other uh, Crohn's and colitis and inflammatory disease sites. You can look those up. You can just Google them. You'll find them all over the place. But the main point I want to stress is that if you happen to have stoma surgery as a result of Crohn's disease, be sure to stay in touch with your stomal therapy nurse and your specialist. If you happen to have skin changes or changes around your stoma, for the time that you have it, we can certainly recommend products and accessories that can help make sure that you get a secure fitting pouch and that you can live your life as normally as possible whilst you have a stoma. That's pretty much it for this episode today, guys. If you like what you're listening to, as per usual, jump online. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Podbean, or Apple Podcasts. Just look up the Oz to Me Nurse Project, O-Z-T-O-M-Y. And you can even feel free to rate us or leave a comment if you like what you're listening to. Thank you guys for listening this week. I appreciate you tuning in. If this is the first time you've tuned in to us, be sure to look up some of the other episodes that may interest you and tune in again for another great episode of the Ostomunos Project coming to you from down under, right where your stoma is. Talk to you next time, guys. Bye.